The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 27. The word of God speaks to us. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became under as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Carol. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with y'all. We need to come up with like a nice cheesy name for our college and adult ministry. It's just very literal, our college and young adults. So if you have any ideas, generation, why not? Or COYA, some horrible acronym. Or maybe we just keep it as it is. I'm off track already. Let's pray. You for me, me for you. I'm Dave, one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm so happy to be with you as we continue just verse by verse for uh, through First Corinthians, and um, um, we are dependent, all of us, to hear from God, me to help us look to the, the truth of the word, so let's pray with one another, for one another. Heavenly Father, I th- am so grateful for everything that we've already sung this morning that's true. And we want to see you magnified in our life, as we've already sung, and we want to see you magnified in this passage. You are, but we, we need help by your power, Holy Spirit, to see all that you have for us today. And so I pray for all of our hearts that we would listen well, Spirit, as you speak to us. And I specifically pray for my own heart and my own words as I try to serve my friends to hold up the beauty of the gospel before each and every one of us. We pray, Jesus, all this in your name together we say. Amen. Amen. As we begin, I want to ask you a question. The question is, uh, think about something that you are passionate about or perhaps the work you do, whatever you would think about when someone asks you, what is your calling, vocation, purpose? Now I want you to imagine you're sitting down with like the greatest of all time as it relates to that calling. 
Like if you're a business person in this room, I want you to just imagine that you have the opportunity to sit down with like an Andrew Carnegie and, and pick his brain over a business lunch about how he approaches business and, and builds enterprise. If you're a creative in this room, perhaps you're a writer, just imagine for a moment you got to have tea with Jane Austen and talk about what it's like to craft narrative and, and, and just foster creativity. Imagine you're law enforcement and you got to, over a campfire, uh, do a ride-along with Bass Reeves, the greatest lawman of all time, right? U.S. Marshal here in Oklahoma and Arkansas, 3,000 felony arrests. He's amazing. You should know Bass Reeves. Lone Ranger ripped off Bass Reeves. True story. He's, he's amazing. Google him. If you're a worship leader, imagine sitting down for a drink with Charlie Hall, and he gets to just share with you what liturgy's like. You get to spend time with the goat, the greatest of all time. Just imagine you get to do that. Whatever your vocation or purpose or calling, that would be priceless time, precious. But if we're Christians, if we're followers of Jesus, whatever endeavor or purpose that we have or whatever calling or vocation, the reality is if we look at the gospel, there's, there's a calling, there's a purpose that saturates, that transcends that. And for example, like just how I was grasping that this morning or where my heart was drawn is just the gospel of Matthew. And what's interesting in the gospel of Matthew, you can do this for homework if you'd like, go read Matthew chapter four and you get to read in Matthew chapter four, Jesus calling his disciples to follow him for the first time and then flip ahead to Matthew 28 and look at Jesus's final words as his disciples continue to follow him in the great commission. And what's so interesting bookended in the gospel of Matthew and all through the story of Jesus and the Gospels is wherever he calls someone to follow him, he doesn't just end with follow me. He always gives a mission. In Matthew 4, he calls Peter and Andrew and he says, come and follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Follow me, know me, but also make me known. You're used to casting nets to cast fish. Now you're going to cast the nets of the gospel into the waters of the world and catch the very hearts of women and men for the kingdom of God. And then in Matthew 28, we have the great commission, the final words of Jesus before the risen Lord is going to ascend and take his throne. And what does he say to his disciples? He tells them to go in all authority that's been given to him on heaven and earth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of God. Know me, but make me known. Follow me, but call others to follow me as well. And what we see when we look at the New Testament is Jesus is always giving his church that mission. So to be a follower of Jesus by definition is to be a missionary. Missionaries aren't just people that are sent to plant churches in Fayetteville like we prayed for this morning or go to places that have never heard the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. Missionaries by nature, by essence, every follower of Jesus is a missionary. Even if it's just going across the street to, to share kindness and compassion and pray for a neighbor in need. And so the beauty of this passage is we get to hear from the goat, the greatest missionary of all time. That, that it is unassailable that, that Paul had the greatest impact for the kingdom of God. No one worked more to spread the Christian faith. No one had a greater impact on the world regarding the spread of Christianity and the good news of Jesus than the apostle Paul. And the gift to us is we get to hear from the greatest missionary of all time, 
as it relates to living out mission. And so we're going to study this text together, three points, point by point. And and the first, we're going to look at purpose in mission. The second, practice in mission. And the third, passion of mission. Note takers, it's just your love language that I literate that for you. So if, you know, that helps you, you're welcome. The first thing, purpose and mission. Let's look again at what Paul writes just to, to kick us off in verse 19. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win some. Let's stop there. Paul's, Paul's saying, hey, I'm free. He's saying that spiritually. I'm free in Christ. He's saying that literally. I'm, I'm not a slave, a bond servant. I am a free man. I've, but, Paul says, I've made myself a servant to all. See, Paul is holding up. Remember the context of of what Paul's been saying that we've been studying the last three weeks in this particular passage of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And the pervasive, the prevailing problem with this church is they weren't marked by love for one another. They were known by division and divisiveness and infighting. And at the heart of that was their, their prideful insistence upon their own rights, their own freedoms. They were more concerned with themselves than one another. And so, of course, it was a church that was full of gifts and lots of things that were impressive, but it was ultimately a church that was largely void of love. So it wasn't much of a church at all. And so Paul, in love, is writing by example. And here, he's been making this point the last several weeks, and he's kind of reached the summit, the crescendo, right? The, the, the very top of where he's been leading is this passage, and he's going to talk about where he, he's going with his sacrificial service. And he's going to say here, he is saying here, hey, I freely choose to live as a servant. Even though I'm a free man, my life is actually defined by an orientation to give to live for others. He's, he's saying, look, I'm a bondservant. I'm a slave to all. To a, to a church that's obsessed with their own rights, Paul's saying, look, I'm a servant to everybody. And why? Well, Paul tells us, I'm a servant to all that I might win more of them. See, Paul's purpose is about one thing. It's Paul's purpose in everything that he's doing, traveling around the world, going through difficulty and, and persecution and shipwreck and all the things that Paul endured that were hardships. Why, Paul, are you doing that? What's your purpose? And Paul here tells us, it's one thing. My purpose is winning people. That verb win that Paul uses here, he uses it six times in all of his letters, but he, five of those six times he uses here in this short passage. Verse 19, 20, 21, 22. I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. Under the law. I became one as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. I became weak that I might win the weak. For Paul, winning isn't some like zero-sum game where he wins and someone else loses, unless that someone else is the powers of darkness. This isn't about Paul getting notches on his belt as a missionary or his own ego or his reputation. See, when Paul talks about winning, he's talking about pleading with people, shining the light into darkness. Like, think about the phrase, that person won me over. It moved me from believing one thing to another. That's the type of winning 
Paul is about in, in the greatest sense of the word, persuading people, winning them for what? Well, Paul defines it for us. He clearly states it in verse 22. Paul says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. See, winning for Paul is about saving people. If you want to understand Paul's driving purpose, his aim, why he did what he did every single day in every way, it is this. Paul would do anything and everything he could to see people saved. And I think the challenge for each and every one of us in some way, though, I feel it. I don't know if you feel it, but whether you're like me and you were raised in church or whether you're maybe just today kind of stepping into a church for the first time in a long time or a first time ever, we're all probably familiar in our culture here in Edmond, Oklahoma, that a big part of Christianity involves that word saves. I grew up living in Edmond, but from the age of probably eight through when I was 18 years old, 10 years, my parents, we went to church in downtown Oklahoma City. And so we'd take 235 South and we would exit 10th Street and you stopped at that stop line, stop sign at 10th Street. And this was like, you know, maps is just starting. So lots of buildings downtown were um, unoccupied, decrepit, whatever, just empty, falling apart. And there was a worn out building with a ton of character right there on the south side of, of 10th when you exited. And it was the Bindery building. And in fading year after year cursive, you could still make out dead center on that building the phrase, Jesus saves. It was right in my face. And what I loved was about maybe 10, 15 years ago when somebody bought that building, a design firm, and they renovated it. I was, when I found out that was happening, I was a little heartbroken. But then the cool thing they did is in the exact same script, they put a fat neon sign that now lights up more than ever. It says, Jesus saves. It's still there in my face every week when I drive down to go to Frontline Downtown for work one or two times a week. I love it. And yet I, I bring that up just because whether we believe in Jesus this morning or we're not so sure what we believe in front of us, often we hear that Jesus saves, but it's good to ask this morning as Paul talks about winning people, winning people so they might be saved to ask, hey, what is he saving from? Saving from what? See, outside of church circles, that word saved is almost always used in reference to getting rescued from something dangerous, something destructive, something like death itself. That fireman saved my life. That hard conversation saved that relationship. That tornado shelter saved us. Well, the New Testament, that word is used in that exact same context. Scripture gives us a full answer. What are we saved from if we're in Christ? What is Paul talking about when he's winning people? What is he winning them to? What is he saving them into and saving them from? Scripture tells us in Romans chapter five, listen to this in verse beginning six. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. See, God's wrath 
Although it's maybe something we don't think about when we think about being saved. Paul tells us here in Romans 5, hey, that's what we're being saved from when we're saved into the kingdom of God. And God's wrath is his holy, settled, consistent, intentional, just response to all that is evil. And it's rooted in God's love. For God to truly be loving, he has to be just. And if God is really loving, he must be opposed adamantly to all that brings ruin and harm against his good creation. And the truth of scripture is that that opposition, that rebellion is, is in us too. We oppose God in our sin and our rejection and our rebellion of him. We're repeat offenders. But the good news of the gospel is, is that out of deep love for you and me, the father sent his son and the son willingly, joyfully, obediently became our rescue. He saved us from the wrath of God by staying on the cross and absorbing that wrath for us, paying the price that we justly deserved. As I was studying for Lent this week and just reflecting upon the cross, I I just came upon this just short passage in the crucifixion account of Jesus And just pay attention to the word save in this passage. This is Luke 23, starting in verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers, the rulers, the religious rulers, they scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, if you're a king of the Jews, save yourself. You just can imagine yourself in that moment and and the price that Jesus is paying. He's experiencing relational suffering. His friends have abandoned him by and large. He's experiencing physical suffering that is hard to ever wrap our minds around. And yet he's experiencing spiritual suffering as as he takes on the wages of our sin. And he's all the while being mocked about not being able to save himself. And yet, Scripture tells us that he could save himself. When the Apostle Peter tries to stop the crucifixion and he draws his sword, Jesus says, hey, look, I don't need your help. I could call down an army of angels to lay waste to everyone if I wanted to. See, Jesus didn't save himself on the cross. He could have, but he didn't save his own life because he was going about the work for the glory of God to save our life and love for us. He paid it all. He experienced the wrath of God on the cross so we don't have to. That's what we're saved from, the just judgment of God that we all deserve. And yet, all we have to do because Jesus did that is we repent of our sins. We place our our faith in the risen Jesus and, and we can be saved from that wrath of God. Scripture tells us if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. And Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. First Timothy tells us that God wants everyone to be saved. It's his heart. So Paul, with God's heart to win, his purpose is about going, is about going, is about the work of going and sharing the gospel that, that we can escape the, the condemnation of God and know his grace and know his love. 
What does that look like? How does Paul go about that? That brings us to our second point. The practice of mission. Look at verse 20. How does Paul live this out? He says in 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. This word become shows up, I think, by my count, six times in this passage. The Greek word for that that Paul uses is genomai. And and there's different definitions if you look at commentaries or study materials. But one that really struck me, one of the primary definitions to understand this word is to come upon the stage. Become, as Paul uses it, that word means to come upon the stage, to show up in the story, if you would. And when I thought about that, it really struck me because you think about Paul's missionary strategy, how he practices this. He enters into the story, the life of people far from God. He shows up on the stage of their life in love. Paul would meet people right where they were in order to share the message of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so he's giving examples. Say, to the Jews, I became a Jew. Paul knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that Jesus had brought radical fulfillment to the Old Testament law. And as a result, everything was different. So food laws and and various sacrificial systems and religious feasts and celebrations and cleansing laws and and so on and so on and so on. Paul knew that that Jesus had changed everything because he was the fulfillment of the law. Yet when Paul was engaging people who were of Jewish heritage, Jewish ethnicity, he could play up his own ethnicity to meet them where they were. And although he had freedoms, he would lay those freedoms down in order to engage and enter into their story to share the gospel. And the opposite's true. He said, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To to Gentiles, to Greeks, to Romans, to non-Jewish people, Paul's saying, hey, when I'm around Gentiles, people who don't know or care about the, the, the Jewish religious system, I can lay down my preferences and live like them. If they're serving barbecue, I don't need to make a fuss about it. I eat the pig. It's great. I'm free in Christ. But there's an important caveat, right, that Paul makes. Look at what he says in verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Paul is not laying down Christian virtue or ethics or morality. He's not saying, I'm hanging out with Romans, so when in Rome, I'm not entering into sin to engage these people in their story, but I'm laying down rights and preferences to shine a light of truth into their story. When he says, to the weak, I became weak. We talked about this several weeks ago. Paul is loving and winning people who have a weaker conscience than Paul. And so if they take issue with something that Paul considers a freedom, he's more than happy to lay that right down in order to enter into their story to proclaim the goodness of the gospel. In studying this passage this week, I heard the story of a woman named Mary Clark. I'd never heard of Mary Clark. Perhaps you had heard of Mary Clark. But Mary's got a a fascinating story. She was born in 1926. 
I believe we have a picture of Mary when she was 29 years old, 1955. It's one of her children. She's the mother of seven. And Mary grew up in, if I were to ask you, hey, what's the nicest neighborhood you could think of? You might say, not rhetorically. Nash, Nash, Gallardia is nice. I'm talking nicer than Gallardia. Fresh, Fresh Prince doesn't even live in a neighborhood this nice. This is Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills, I think of. Maybe it's just me, but I think of Beverly Hills as a super nice neighborhood. Mary grew up born in Beverly Hills, raised in Beverly Hills, upper class, affluent woman, grew up not having faith and yet was miraculously saved later in life, even though she had a life that was particularly hard in lots of ways, and she experienced lots of brokenness. About the age of 50, she came to saving faith in Jesus. And as her faith grew, also her heart for people grew, and her heart to want to to serve grew. And so that led to her regularly driving from Beverly Hills, California, south 150 miles to Tijuana to go to the La Mesa State Penitentiary, one of the toughest prisons in Latin America, to to simply minister to prisoners there. And she did that for a while, and yet she began to experience this this barrier. You just imagine the contrast, like this affluent upper-class woman in her her mid-50s serving largely young men who were there for drug trafficking and robbery and murder. And she was building relationship, but there was this moment every day that she would, would drive down there to do ministry, and then when she was driving those few hours home, she was just feeling this divide that they were staying there in that prison and she was driving back to Beverly Hills. And yet she had this conviction that this was the people group God was calling her to reach. And so she did something that's pretty astonishing. She went to the warden of the prison and she asked for a cell. And not a cell just to like stay in while she was doing ministry there, but a 10 by 10 cell to actually move into to live, to take residency, to to become, to show up on the stage of the lives of these prisoners. She entered in and said, I so want to become all things to all people so that some might be saved. I'm going to leave my mansion in Beverly Hills and enter into this prison cell to be near you so that I can share the truth of who God is to you. And she lived in that cell for decades upon decades upon decades upon decades. She died in 19, or excuse me, 2013 at the age of 86, spending the whole second half of her life embedded in that prison. And she was so honored, so loved, so respected that, that one story that, that really illustrates that is there was a moment that a full-on prison riot had broken out. And just imagine that, just like fists flying in the air, tear gas, billy clubs coming down between the guards and the prisoners. And Mary just walked into the middle of the chaos and everyone, guards and prisoners, just stopped. Her presence was one of such love that when she became, when she walked onto that stage, everyone knew that she was a reflection of the love of God. Now that's like an extreme example. (laughs) And yet like I often need extreme examples to feel the heat of like actual change taking place in my life. The point is this, like 
lives have been changed by followers of Jesus being willing to become all things to all people in order that some might be saved. And so what does that look like in the lives of our church? These final verses help us. Let's look at our third thing, passion for mission. Paul's passion for mission, our call to have passion for mission. Verse 24, Paul asks, hey, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This verse is actually most often used out of context when we hear it taught or referenced. It's usually just about running the race of the Christian life, right? We want to run the race in a disciplined way. We want to follow Jesus in a way where we have passion and intensity and intentionality. And that's true, but that's not Paul's point here. Paul's point is that discipline and and drive is essential not just to our growth in Christ, but our discipline is essential to our witness to the world, that it takes work and passion and drive and intentionality and great effort to know our neighbors or people far from God, to know their objections, to know their hopes, their dreams, their questions, their doubts, to become, to enter into their story. Author and Bible teacher Aaron Davis provides some helpful insight on Paul's words here when she writes, the apostle isn't writing about salvation here. No amount of training or self-discipline could earn us that. Salvation is ours forever because of Christ's work, not ours. But let's be honest, it's possible possible to be saved but not sowing, to be redeemed but not reaping, to be an ambassador of faith but not a good one. It's possible to run the race of faith but not run it well. Corinth was a sports town. The most important ancient sporting games was the Olympics, were the Olympics, but the the second most important, the second most honorable, the second most popular were the uh, Isthmian games that happened in Corinth the year before and the year after the Olympics. And athletes would come to compete in horse racing and chariot racing and boxing and wrestling and pancration, which was like a gnarly form of ancient MMA and arts and poetry, which I find hilarious. Like, just imagine the debates. It's like, is poetry a sport, you know? Um, but in addition, I think the, the, the real show of those games was the foot race, the, the, the racing on, uh, just, just uh, on feet. And Paul is using that as an example of runners And he's saying, look at how these guys are so disciplined in their passion and their intensity to run this race that we all witness every few years here in Corinth. And yet they are sacrificing so much. The way that they live is defined. You know they're an athlete and it's their passion and their drive. And yet they do it all for a laurel wreath, which is a a, a little rope of leaves that are going to wither with time. So how much more should we have a passion and a purpose because what we're running for is not something that withers away, but we're running that those who are made in the image of God who are far from them would would know salvation and that there would be an eternal prize. 
that we would be in glory one day and God would have used us as instruments in his hands to become, to enter into people's story, to share good news that we might together experience the, the treasure of eternal life with God. Paul's saying run like that. I, I every week this time of year see two cross-country teams. And the first is the, the collegiate cross-country team at UCO. Anna and I, our family, we live at the bottom of a, a hill. It's not, a, you know, as far as Edmund goes, it's a good hill, you know? And the UCO cross-country team, they come to our cul-de-sac and, and just a, in a crazy impressive way, again and again and again, they just run sprints up that hill. And each and every one of them, these are college athletes. They're not messing around. They all act like runners. They look like runners. They're incredibly disciplined. And they're Kate Bushing it. They're running up that hill, you know? And then the second group of cross-country runners I see is because physically this church is the closest church in the city to Memorial High School. And then the mass majority of those boys that I see running cross-country, they're, they're the same. They are running with intensity. And yet there's always that group. You know them when you see them, Right? And it's like they're running just hard enough to not get yelled at by the coach. They're running hard when their group of friends run by them. And then as, as soon as they think they're alone, they're just like, all right, I'm going to walk it out for a little bit, you know, or they're talking to each other. Right. And like, sometimes I feel like that's the way I'm running the race to witness to people. And if you're like me, you feel like, Hey, I'm running, I'm running enough that I feel like I'm making an effort. And Paul's like, hey, just don't do this out of duty. Do this, don't do this out of obligation. Do this with passion, like you're trying to actually win something. Run and run hard because it's worth it. So in light of that, what does this mean for us? Well, here's some questions that I was prayerfully considering this week that I think we should all consider together. They'll be up here on the screen. First question is this. What does running the race to share your faith at work or school look like? Who do you work alongside or study alongside where right now in their life, you might be the only source of gospel proclamation they have? What does running the race to share your faith with the people uh, God has placed around you look like? Sovereignly, God has providentially given you family and friends and neighbors so as Matt just mentioned, even in announcements, the family business this morning, hey, who can you prayerfully be considering to invite to Easter here in five weeks to hear the gospel? How can our community groups be praying for people together in our lives that we need to move towards, that we need to become, we need to enter into their story, that we might win some? How can we intentionally, in hospitality and kindness, make room for those people to hang out with us in the context of gospel community so they can know the compassion and the love of the family of God? How do I need to grow and learn to better run the race of sharing my faith? Perhaps that's things that we need to read this year, like Mama Bear Apologetics or 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask About Christianity, the resources that we have for us highlighted in our hallway. Or books by Dr. Tim Keller, like Reasons for God, if we have skeptics and doubters in our life so that we can come up with um, real answers to their real questions and share those with them. Or perhaps the answer is like moving towards people in our church that are just really good at loving those who are far from God. 
having Molly and Brandon High over for lunch or hanging out with Kristen and, and JJ side or Steve and Sandy Curry over some coffee to talk about how they as families move towards and love people far from God so well. Or here's a final question as we wrap up. What lifestyle changes could I make to run the race of sharing my faith? What can adjust in my life that I can run harder for the glory of God and for the love of others far from God? Maybe that's a small change like, you know, inviting intentionally once a week out to lunch a friend that you know who does not yet have faith. Maybe that's working a little less each week so you have the margin to coach your child's sports team so you can get to know some new people. Maybe that's a really big change like adopting or fostering. I can't think of a greater example of sacrificial love than this. And yet at the heart of this passage for Paul, at the heart of this passage for us, it's verse 23, I do all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessing. See, this is what it comes down to for Paul. This, the gospel isn't something that he just wants to say, although it is. It's not something that he just wants to proclaim, although it is. He wants to live it out. He wants to, he wants to reflect it. Jesus sacrificially loved Paul, and Paul's saying, hey, I have been saturated by that love, and now I want to live a life that points to that love, and I want to sacrificially love others. God moved towards me when I was far from him, and now I want to move towards others with the love of God when they're far from him. And that's Paul's charge for each and every one of us. So if you're not sure what you believe or you're certain that you're not believing in this moment, I hope when you look at this passage that you realize that the love of God is real for you. And what you begin to realize about the church is that what we want to live out and how we want to live our lives is that we're willing to sacrifice and even change our lives if that means helping you better understand God's love. And if we're followers of Jesus, we get to come and and celebrate at the Lord's table. And this table is a joyful feast of the people of God. People all across the globe have come to this table. And what's beautiful, as I was reminded this week, is, is in the Gospel of Luke, it says that when our risen Lord was at the table with his disciples, he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. He gave it to them. And in that moment, their eyes were open and they recognized him. And so our prayer is that when we come to this table, that the spirit would do something in us where in a new way, our eyes are open to see the love of God and see others far from God and have his heart to see them. That the way we would view people who are lost would be the way that Jesus views people who are lost and that we would move towards them with the very love of God. And as we're sent into the city here in a moment, we carry that love with the intensity of a runner trying to win a race straight towards people who God has providentially placed in our life, who need to hear explicitly from our mouths and see the example in our life, God's sacrificial love for them. Let's stand and pray. We praise you, Jesus Christ. We remember this morning that you were tempted in every way, yet you never sinned. You overcame temptation. You beat sin and darkness. You beat even death. And so we're here and we're, we're weak and we're, 
We're experiencing trial. Some of us might be struggling with our own doubts. And so we, we come to you and we just proclaim our dependency and we ask that you would give us strength to take up our cross and follow you. And give us strength to, to shine the light of the gospel in the darkness of those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.